Welcome to Act and Unwind, an ongoing conversation on a free and virtuous society. I'm your host, Dan Huger. Eric Cohn is out this week. Thank you for listening. I want to ask that if you're listening to us on our website, that you navigate to the show notes for this episode to find a link to subscribe directly to Act and Unwind at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else you can listen to find podcasts. And if you like this program, please leave us a five-star review at Apple Podcasts so as to help more people find the show. This week, I'm joined by Dylan Palman, Acton Research Fellow and Executive Editor of the Journal of Markets and Morality, and Contributing Editor here at Acton, uh, Emily Zanotti. Today, we'll be talking about the first Republican presidential debate of the primary season, both the debate itself and the larger question of the place of these sorts of debates in our national consciousness. But first, however, I want to begin our discussion with President Trump. The current odds-on favorite for the Republican Party's nomination uh, was not at the debate last week. But he did many other things last week. Uh, among them, uh, he surrendered himself and was arrested and booked at an Atlanta jail on racketeering and conspiracy charges. The Telegraph reported that the former president bemoaned the situation as a quote-unquote travesty of justice. Uh, now, from the Telegraph, speaking to reporters afterwards, he called it a very sad day for America, adding, I did, not, I did nothing wrong. The former president had also also had a booking photo taken while he was processed in the city's Fulton County Jail. It marks the first time a sitting or former U.S. president has been captured in a mugshot, just as the latest ignominy uh, for the four-time indicted Mr. Trump. Mr. Trump, the frontrunner for the Republican 2024 presidential primary race, is expected to exploit what is set to become a world-famous image to boost his campaign coffers. He has claimed the charges against him are political, a witch hunt, and accused his Democratic opponents of election interference. And quote, there's a lot to unpack here, but perhaps it's best to begin with the question of whether framing this certainly very sad situation as a travesty of justice is appropriate. Emily, could you help us sort of unpack these charges, their merits, and and sort of, you know, is this is this a standard operating procedure or not? So the charges are actually really interesting because you would expect that these stem from sort of amorphous claims of vote and electioneering and election interference. And that's actually the way they're being portrayed quite a bit. But the the crux of the claim is that Trump, Giuliani, um, as well as many members of his legal team, um, and some very key uh, Trump volunteers, Trump employee or Trump campaign employees, worked together to pressure a number of, or at least one prominent Georgia election official to say that there was evidence of vote tampering in Georgia. Um, and so you see this, if you look at the actual charges, you can see that it does look a lot like there was a conspiracy to try to pressure somebody down to the point of going to her house with a number of people. She was a black woman. They recruited um, black members of the Trump campaign to go and tell her, you know, you need to do this. You need to go public with these accusations. So if you look actually at the charges, it does look like something may have happened here. Now, the question as far as Trump is concerned is how much Trump knew about the day to day, the nitty gritty 
the actual plan of pressuring uh, or allegedly pressuring this woman to say that she had evidence of vote tampering in Georgia. Um, and that isn't super clear. In fact, it may be the case where all of these members of the Trump campaign end up having to say that they were part of an alleged conspiracy that Trump didn't really know a whole lot about. So it's it's an interesting it's an interesting group of charges, but I'm not really sure that it totally implicates the president. And of course, I think that or the former president, and I think they really did just want the mugshot. I mean, <laughs> they thought the mugshot was going to humiliate him when he is, I think, biologically incapable of being humiliated. So it 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 came it came down to that. You've got a strange set. I mean, part of the part of the problem for sort of your casual news watcher is there's a lot of indictments coming from a lot of places about a lot of different things. And it is very easy to conflate those um, as you're listening to the radio on the way home from work, as you're checking headlines. Um, so, you know, one of the resources that I always use for these things, which, you know, I think has a bad rap is, is Wikipedia is like, let's look at the Georgia indictment. And then I'm looking at press reports just mm -hmm. about this particular indictment. Um, there were a number of other sort of high profile mug shots along with this indictment. Uh, John Eastman, who we've talked about previously on this program, was one of those folks. Dylan, what do you make of sort of the new circus around this? Um, on the one, it's, it's difficult to judge because part of it is like, you know, this is a real indictment, which, you know, and, you know, these are, you know. He really did go down to a courthouse or go down to a jail and was really arrested. And these are like important things on the one hand. On the other hand, they all kind of run together right now. And it's re and a lot of people have already made up their minds and made up their minds about these sorts of things a very long time ago. Yeah. So, I mean, a lot of this sort of thing. It's easy to kind of get into a, a, a sort of partisan nihilism that everybody's everybody's got their own decision. You know that it, anything could happen to Trump, and people are just going to defend him and say it's a witch hunt, or or he could he could be you know the most innocent man in the world, and anybody on the left is going to say oh he's terrible. And we have, to, um, but I I really think uh, there is uh, a sizable group of people who do not follow this like the terminally online, um, that it's just not their thing. But if they see the former president in busted uh, uh, newspaper, uh, that, that might actually matter for the median, you know, undecided sort of voter that's just not over politicized. Those people do exist. They just don't spend a lot of time online. Um, so I don't. So that's just the first thing is I do think it matters. Um, as for the mugshot, I mean, I can kind of go both ways. Obviously, I, I, I would agree with Emily. Like, some people just really wanted this guy to have a mugshot. They wanted to humiliate him. On the other hand, anybody else gets arrested, they get a mugshot. This was, I believe, his fourth time, and this is the first mugshot, right? So there is something to be said about, like, equal treatment under the law. Like, it doesn't matter if you're former president. you got to have that mugshot. Also the first state-level crime. So a lot of these have been white-collar 
or um, SDNY, Southern District of New York, <laughs> which will indict a ham sandwich. I mean, like you're just talking about a lot of a lot of things that are federal crimes or they're financial crimes. So they don't really require this mugshot. And then, of course, this is very different. This is a state level crime that a couple of people are trying to escalate to a federal level crime. Um, but it's a state level crime. And so it's the kind of thing that you have to get booked for. There's just so much about it. So it's on on the left. I mean, for weeks, uh, there were people posting AI mugshots of Trump. I mean, clearly there were people that just really wanted to see this. On the other hand, uh, as, as the Telegraph mentioned, Trump is already using this to try to raise funds for his campaign and promote himself. He returned to Twitter, uh, now X, uh, to post uh, the mugshot. Uh, which could not have been taken had he not surrendered uh, with the caption, quote, never surrender. <laughs> that, that was that was his his motivation. And it shows how he does not care so much about the facts of the matter. And he never has. And there are people that very much respect him for that. Um, and you can look at that in a very negative way in the sense of, you know, this is a guy who doesn't care about truth. Uh, but it's also a guy who uh, is very much in the sort of mentality of like, well, people know what I mean, and who cares if I don't get the facts straight? And I think that's that's one of the things that's always been of great appeal to the sort of people that make up his base, uh, that they get fact-checked all the time. You know, they hear things through hearsay, or they have interesting, you know, conspiracy theories they're into, and then people shut them down, and they're like, well, yeah, but, like, there's still, you know, there's there's corrupt people in government. Like, that's my point. Or there there's, you know, something fishy going on here, and yeah, maybe I didn't get the facts right, but you know what I mean, right? And there's a lot of people that kind of function that way, and Trump represents them very well. Um, so I think... I think he's he's doing what he can um, to to kind of spin it in his direction. And he's very good at controlling media narratives. Um, in fact, using Twitter to do that all through his president presidency in his first campaign. Um, but at the same time, I, I do think it matters. I, I can't I can't imagine it doesn't matter. And it doesn't. Elections are so close uh, in the last several cycles now. Um, it, it can't not matter that he is been indicted, that there's an actual mugshot of the former president now. I don't see how that's not a negative. I think indictments previous to this didn't matter. I think people assumed that like SDNY, New York State, um, some of these places were going to be on his back because of who they are. Um, This is different. And I'm not saying that because, you know, I'm certainly not a Trump fan, but I am saying like your number, this is now number four. They all run together. This is for a um, very explicit charge. So there's details in this that, you know, maybe we're not talking about the details right now, but then they're going to start talking about them once you get into a campaign level. Um, And this is this is a it goes straight to the heart of the whole 2020 was a stolen election kind of thing. You know, you have these people who are being indicted who are saying, oh, we were going to release the Kraken. We're going to release the Kraken. Well, now it's almost four years later and we've had no evidence of any of that. But we have had evidence that they went to people's homes and and allegedly went to people's homes and badgered them. Um I think this one is different. Maybe maybe I'll be proven wrong in the long run and and I am just still insane that I think any of this still makes a difference or any of this really matters. <laughs> Logic really matters in politics anymore. Um but I do think that this one um 
this one has a little more gravitas and it could end up, you know, going to trial at the wrong time. It could end up going to deposition at the wrong time. We may see, you know, evidence being produced. So I think it's, it may not look like much now, but it looks like it's going to go forward in a, in a more impactful way, maybe. I might still be just insane. There's an interesting, as, as you're unpacking this, Emily, all of a sudden I'm coming up with a sort of Straussian reading of the new tweet um, or post or, you know, whatever it is that the extreme kids on X call it these days. The caption read, just not never surrender. As Dylan said, there's there's a link to a campaign fundraising <laughs> website. I don't know if it's campaign or legal defense fund or maybe both. Um, and it's 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 the, it leads with that link, and then you have the mug shot, and then you have the captions: election interference, never surrender. So now there's an interesting question because we've had this narrative from many of the folks indicted that there were election interference on the part of uh, local officials in Georgia. But the charge is actually that there is election interference by these folks and by President Trump. So it's a fascinating tweet in that sense, in that it proclaims never surrender while photographically documenting the time and place of a surrender, it alleges election interference when the reason for the photograph is allegations and charges of election interference, um, which is just a very weird sort of rabbit hole um, to go down. I, I feel like, you know, you know, I've I've come up, you know. I feel like I need a psychology PhD in order to unpack all of the various like misnomers and and, and like an, it's an MC Escher painting come to life. <laughs> <laughs> it really is, um, and this is this is why he's the greatest at this. <laughs> um, um, you know, many people have many opinions about President Trump. One of the least controversial is that he is very great on X. Social media. Social media. Yeah. Um, now, I have a larger question about booking photos because Dylan brought up Busted Magazine. And our listeners who might not be familiar with Busted because they don't go to gas stations in those parts of town, um, at least in the state of Michigan, you go to a certain kind of gas station and you see Busted Magazine. And what Busted Magazine is, is everyone's photographs who have been booked recently. Um, in the county. So actually, I county. should say I did look this up, and, and Busted Newspaper does not have a Fulton County edition. So there probably will not be a, a issue of Busted with the former president's uh, mugshot in it. Yes. So this has gone online, though. So there are Instagram accounts. Like here in Nashville, we have an Instagram account called Scoop Nashville. And what it does is on Monday morning, it gets all the tourist booking photos who got busted, you know, along Broadway, face down oh, wow. on the pavement, <laughs> um, and then lists their name. So basically, you can Google somebody, like say it's your lawyer, um, and you can Google somebody, and that booking photo of Scoop Nashville comes up, and it says that they got arrested right. at Dirk Bentley's <laughs> bar, something for, um, you know, urinating on a bouncer. 
Um, so there are there are social media accounts. There's also mug shots, oh, no. which is hot ladies. Oh. <laughs> swipe book, swipe really right to indict. Book to book online this morning. But. Bookings gone <laughs> wild. Swipe right. Um, <laughs> we have. I mean, but part of this is. I mean, this is this is funny, and this is why people buy these magazines. Is they say, "Oh, that's that guy down the street," and they I buy mean, it. I've worked at factories where they were just sitting out in the break room. Yeah, you get guys to spend their lunch hour finding out who got busted on what and. But part of the business model is selling these for a dollar in gas stations. But the other part of the business model is uh, having people pay to get their photos and charges removed from Busted Magazine. And so there's always a way that, you know, when we were thinking about through these mugshots sort of thing, is, is the mugshot a sort of inherently exploitative thing um, sometimes it's exploited by people to raise campaign funds. Sometimes it's exploited by folks who want to take advantage of folks who had embarrassing, terrible things done. And, you know, they're, they're leveraging the shame of those people to get money right. out of them. So unfortunately, this is true, I think, of every justice system. Um, I mean, Tocqueville even talked about how parole uh, is, you know, favors people with means, right? If you don't have the money to pay parole, you're not getting out. So you have to be someone with money <laughs> to benefit from parole. Um, and you can even look into the Old Testament. Sometimes, uh, you know, some damages were required and a harsh punishment, or you could pay a certain amount, right? Like there is this idea for substitution of, you know, a financial penalty for other penalties, uh, which is going to favor people with means. Um, that's always the case. I don't know if that always should be the case, but that always seems to be the case. Um, so I do think there is a, a fundamental inequality here. And this is a case where uh, the former president can't really connect uh, with with his, his base uh, on that account because if there's any way for him to pay not to be in Busted Magazine, he can afford it. Uh, if there's any way, you know, it, he's gotten in legal trouble many times in the past. What he typically does is settle out of court. They can't do that, right? Um, so I don't know that this is good for him on that score either. And that this is going to highlight one of the ways in which he's very, very unlike um, a lot of his core base. You also see that there are members of his of the group of people who were indicted who are getting their bail paid for who are part of it um and then there is at least one person who did not get bail because he has a previous charge of assaulting an fbi agent or a federal officer of some sort so even within that group you can kind of see the inequality and you also see that trump is coming back and saying i'm going to pay bail or i'm going to pay fees for a lot of people but I'm not going to pay bail or fees for, say, Jenna Ellis, who generally turned on him later on. So you kind of see that inequality playing out and you kind of get a sense of the bail system as well. And talking about criminal justice reform and, and the the inefficiencies and inequalities of the bail system. He's on a two hundred thousand dollar Bail. He had a $2 million bail. He had to post 200000 He went through a bail bondsman. Um, you know, and this is actually how many people don't get bail. How many people end up 
having to stay in jail because they can't afford that. So you do you do see that really in play here, especially in a place like Georgia, where you probably do have some racial inequality in the system as well. I will say, I would not necessarily say that then the whole system should be done away with or something like that. One of the ways to think about this is when confronted with this kind of, you know, inequality and inequality before the law is a very bad thing. <laughs> that is the nature of injustice. Uh, that's not that doesn't mean that all inequality everywhere is unjust. But before the law, that's a big problem. Um, but this is an opportunity for nonprofits. And there are many nonprofits that do specialize in paying bail for people who can't afford it, in helping people with parole and that sort of thing. Um, so and I, I probably it probably was bail that Tocqueville talked about. I probably said the, the wrong word. Um, but uh, but so I, I, I think I think we do need to take a step back. On the one hand, it's going to favor people with means. On the other hand, the question is, well, what can we do to bring means to people who don't have it. I think that's a very worthwhile ministry uh, for people to think about, even for the guilty um, in the case where you just want equal treatment. You want someone to be treated with dignity, even if eventually you're pretty sure, hey, this isn't going to work out for them. Well, you know, give them every chance they can to keep their life together, to, um, you know, spend time with their family before conviction, whatever the case may be, like, there's something noble about that. And it's an opportunity uh, for people uh, with a heart for it and with the means for it to actually do something about it that would not be there were that system not in place. I think that's an immensely constructive way to think about it, particularly when you've got some economists. And I know Alex Tabarrok of, of uh, George Mason University has talked about this before and written about this before, is a lot of times when municipalities, uh, different, different localities – end cash bail, the result is more people spending more time in jail. Right. It's not fewer people in jail. I mean, it people losing their jobs because they can't go back to work. More it's, of the time. It's, it's bad. Yeah. And some of this results from things like bench warrants. You know, you get a parking ticket or a speeding ticket. You don't pay it. It keeps coming, you know, coming due and coming due. You don't pay it for a certain amount of time. You get a bench warrant. Then you are in jail on a bench warrant for something else. You know, you you never know you have an outstanding warrant. You get pulled over. You have to set this. And then you can't go to work. You can't feed your kids. There's a whole set of dominoes that falls when you have this kind of system where you end up with people who are in jail for these sort of small petty crimes. And you're actually, you know, actively destroying a, a working life. Um, in order to in order to fill your jail or to fill your coffers. So there's there's an issue there. Turning from crime and punishment, um, we'll turn to the crime of televised debates and the punishment that we all endure by viewing them. Um, there is a there was a first sort of Republican primary debate of the season. We've already mentioned this did not feature the front runner, President Trump. This is not because this booking thing was happening at the same time of the debate. Uh, there is something else that President Trump was up to during the debate, uh, which we'll unpack a little bit later. But you had this debate um, – and you have these things, they, they've, they're sort of part of our American political culture. Um, 
The media makes a lot of them. People who are very, very interested in politics love them. It's a showcase opportunity for their particular candidate. Uh, it's a chance to watch, you know, the thrill of victory of those candidates they like and the agony of defeat as candidates they don't like humiliate themselves as, of course, you know, everyone is bound to do on, if they're on television long enough. Dylan, what did you, as a sort of veteran TV debate watcher and enjoyer, think of this first round? Uh, don't accuse me of enjoying it. Um, so uh, my uh, my take, there are eight candidates, um, and there's a few ways to think about this. So let's, let's just talk um, pure who has a chance in the abstract, not who do I like, not who do I think other people should like. But who seemed to have any kind of a chance? And for me, uh, there's there's a few factors. The most important one is, are they entertaining? Like, can people sit through them talking? I, that matters uh, to the median voter. Um, and by that score, Vivek Ramaswamy was the best candidate. Um, he was well-spoken. He spoke a lot. He managed to strategically get other people to mention him, which allowed him to get his own little 30-second rebuttals. And so he got a lot of camera time, and he got to say a lot. Um, unfortunately for him, the things he said uh, were genuinely crazy uh, half the time. And I I understand where he's going for there. He's trying to basically be, you know, a younger Trump um, and, you know, perhaps even going farther than Trump might go on some things. Um, but I don't see that as a winning strategy. So that's the one side. is, And then the other person who's kind of been in that lane is actually Ron DeSantis, who's the only one with poll numbers that suggests that maybe he would have a chance at overtaking the former president for the nomination. Um, he did pretty badly. I mean, he did his first opening statement. Um, he, he has this weird kind of way of speaking where he just never seems very sure of himself to the point where he tried to end with a smile and failed. And I don't know how that's possible, but you can watch it and you'll see what I mean. Um, and it just did not seem like a good debate to, for him to me on just pure charisma uh, again. Um, now, my thought is strategically the opportunity is not among the Trump base. Now, the, the Trump base skews heavily uh, to Republican primary voters without a college degree. Um, in 2016, Trump was basically the only candidate going for those voters. And there was about 12 candidates going for the same people who had picked uh, 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 Mitt Romney unanimously in 2012. Um, and so to me, the opportunity is for someone to go for the GOP voters with a college degree who are pretty uncomfortable voting for Donald Trump. Maybe they will if they have to, um, but they really don't want to. Um, there's two candidates who were going for those voters, maybe three or four, but like, I'm only going to mention the ones that have, you know, any kind of notoriety. Um, and that would be Chris Christie and Nikki Haley. Um, Chris Christie, in fact, was openly attacking uh, the former president. Um, he's very much trying to campaign more to the center uh, rather than more to the right, as DeSantis and Ramaswamy uh, are doing. Um, unfortunately for him, he's Chris Christie, and I don't think he'll ever be president. Uh, people just don't like him. I don't think there's anything he can do about that at this point. Nikki Haley, I think, did okay. In fact, I would say she probably was second place in the debate. Um, she wasn't, you know, super entertaining, but she wasn't boring. Uh, she sounded smart. Um, she sounded like she knew what she was talking about. She actually had some good comebacks to Ramaswamy occasionally. Um, and she didn't say anything crazy. 
So that's good for her. Um, I don't know if she has a chance. Um, I, if it is, it's probably a very, very small chance. But I think she's kind of the best those that demographic can hope for uh, that's currently running right now. Um, so that's kind of my my general take on you know the the state of things. The other thing to mention is just there are the reason why I don't mention everyone is there are some people who when they run for president they are not actually running for president. So the North Dakota governor, uh, what's his name? Uh, Durgum, Dunham, something, I don't know. Burgum? I, I okay, personally yes, Ber- am infected with Burgum Bentham. Burgum Bentham. I mean, I, I think, I think he, like, he's, he's, he's an interesting, yeah, he's an interesting. Doug yep. Burgum. Yeah, yeah and Asa, Asa Hutchinson. Hutchinson. So Burgum, I think, Hutchinson. is an interesting guy. From what I can tell, he's running for Secretary of Energy. Um, and I think he would be a good pick for that. I think he Maybe. might just be bored and he's I think he's probably one of the most wealth or the most wealthy, one of the wealthiest people to have ever okay. run other than Tom Steyer. And um, he I feel like he might just be like, this is my retirement. I don't know what else to do. It's this or buy, you know, a, a, a sure. pied de terre in, right, right. in some yeah. European city. <laughs> What's going to keep me busier? <laughs> I mean, the the man did build a billion dollar business in North Dakota. Yeah, no, and I, I'm not tricky. saying he has no qualifications, like, but he's not super. <laughs> yeah, that's not. Yeah, 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 palace. right. Uh, so, but he's I mean, not. He's, he's not super charismatic. He's he wasn't terrible, but he seemed a little confused on not not his stance, but the way in which he wanted to word what he had to say, which is a very bad quality for a presidential candidate. Um, you could say a lot of these people, perhaps all these people were running for vice president, although I don't think Haley or Christie could be accused of that. Uh, but the rest of them, uh, DeSantis, think... yeah, probably not. Um, but the, the fact that they're going for Trump's base suggests maybe they're running for vice president. Or my last thought on, on the strategy side, then maybe we'll say something about, you know, versus the, the Tucker Carlson interview uh, afterwards. But um, my last strategy thought is perhaps someone like Ramaswamy is going so hard for the Trump base. In fact, openly defending President and former President Trump um, because he thinks there's a chance, you know, this would be a cynical read of it, but he thinks there's a chance that Trump does uh, end up in prison or something happens with his health or something like that. He's a very old man. Um, so is President Biden, for that matter. Uh, there is a real possibility that neither of them will be capable of being president a year from now. Um, that's just a fact with anyone of that age. Um, and it may be that he's like, hey, I'm a millennial. I am I either agree or I'm willing to pretend that I agree with uh, this wide variety of very crazy stances that his base has really liked. And I'm just going to go hard and, you know, see if fate is in my favor this year. Um, so that's one way to read what he's doing. Um, but that's that's kind of my general take on the debate. I'll just leave it to the, ba- the debate at the moment. And we can talk about Fox News versus streaming later. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I'm typically in the war room for these things. I'm not typically watching them. So it struck me a little bit differently, I think. Um, I see Ramaswamy as, as something of a Trump stalking horse. Um, I think he's going for the same people. I think he's there to kneecap DeSantis. I, I I kind of feel like I've known of him since before he entered. So it's interesting for me because I saw him enter the presidential race, you know, and he started kind of becoming one of these media talking heads. He was somebody who was a contributor on various cable news networks. 
Um, he put out a book. He was he was very much an anti-woke in the corporate system up until up until this this sort of situation with Donald Trump. And he all of a sudden became very much a populist, which is very different from, I think, what he was saying before. He was very much a libertarian kind of anti-woke in the corporate world. Um, and then we were talking about this a bit on Twitter that he kind of is with, if you think of Donald Trump as a weak man's idea of what a strong man seems like, Ramaswamy to me seems a little bit like kind of a an ordinary person's idea of what a smart and extremely smart person should sound like. But if you really listen to him, he's not really saying anything. So it's an interesting addition to the debate field because he feels a little like um, I compared him to, you know, the college boyfriend you have that mistakes pretension for intelligence and, you know, has a massive criterion <laughs> collection, film library and all of this kind of stuff. Right. You know, like, and, and he says Nutella and, Let's tell on his toasted waffles after spending a week in France or something like that. Um, you're just kind of like, I don't understand this guy. I don't know where he's going. Um, but everyone else to me seemed a little bit confused as to who they were trying to get on their side. So you might have had, I thought DeSantis did what DeSantis normally does. I think it was a good debate for him given what DeSantis has been putting up with and dealing with over the last few weeks, a campaign, you know, may or may not be doing what it needs to be doing. Um, so to me, it seems like everyone's confused about who they should be talking to. Do they talk to the moms who are worried about their kids in school? Do they talk, are those also the Trump people? Are the moms for liberty already in the Trump camp? Are, and so they're just trying to do their best to walk the line between what Trump should be doing um, what Trump would normally be doing, and then trying to make sure that they also say they're not Trump so that in the event Trump does drop out, there is some competition for that top slot. So it was a odd debate from my perspective, having gone through absolute years of these This things. is an odd debate in a lot of ways. But before I, I go and unpack one of the ways that it's odd, I just want to say for our West Michigan contingent that if you are Dutch, you can use Nutella with authenticity and credibility. <laughs> you can even put sprinkles on top of the Nutella on top of your toast and not be Caligula. Um, that is for uh, only only us Dutchmen. <laughs> I personally grew up with Nutella because my parents are Italian. And when I was a kid, it was like, what is this freak eating in her lunch, this chocolate hazelnut spread? And then 10 years later, everyone's into <laughs> Nutella like it's some cool thing. But only, I resent only the that, unmentionable obviously. ethnics, uh, as Michael Novak would have called them, can enjoy their Nutella. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> guilt free. But when we talk about this debate, so there's, there's, I mean, this is, this is great analysis from both Emily and Dylan in terms of the content of the debate. But in terms of the context of the debate, we had something like 12.8 million people watch this debate. Meanwhile, on X, uh, Mr. X himself, Tucker Carlson, was interviewing the frontrunner, President Trump. Uh, to considerably more viewers, I don't know exactly. 
I mean, this to 150 million viewers. Um, now, views are calculated a little differently between what counts as a Twitter view or an X view or an X ray, perhaps, and uh, you know how cable television does this sort of thing. But it does speak to a sort of generational divide, uh, perhaps occurring, um, and also sort of a technical divide. Uh, Dylan wanted to watch this debate and had some troubles. And uh, it'd be great yeah. if you could share that story to yeah. give some so, context. So, I mean, to the the point about Twitter views, views do not necessarily mean watchers. It could mean you saw two seconds of it as you scrolled past in your feed, right? Um, so I. It's also an autoplay video, right? So if it came up in your feed and you are not actually interested in it, it's still autoplayed for three seconds. You count as an impression, and every time yeah. it autoplays, it's another impression. So we have actually so no. We idea do know it got about a half million likes. Three seconds. So I don't know. That's at least a half million people that watched it and liked it. I would at least say we could probably guess just as many watched it and didn't like it. Uh, but there's probably also a group of indifferent people who are even greater. You know, so I don't know how many millions of people, but over a million, I think, is very reasonable. Um, if it's 150 million, then it completely blew this debate out of the water. Um, hard to say. Uh, but I do wonder, uh, I wonder about the delivery method. So I wanted to watch the debate after the fact. I was not going to watch it during the fact, because I have better things to do with my nights uh, when my kids are finally asleep. And I don't have cable, like a good millennial. Um, I, it's just not something I've ever been interested in. My wife and I have never had cable for the 13 years we've been married. Um, and so we don't have Fox or Fox Business, uh, Fox News or Fox Business. Um, so I figured, okay, I'll just watch it on YouTube uh, the next day. Could not find it on YouTube. Fox News has a YouTube channel with clips from the debate. But they did not just dump the whole debate with all of their advertisements on YouTube. And I don't, I don't really know what to think of that, except that it seems very behind the times to me that you have Trump going on this free streaming platform. Uh, it's weird to think of Twitter or X or whatever you want to call it as a streaming platform. But um, in a sense, it, it occasionally does function that way. And it did uh, last Wednesday night. Um, that's something that's available to everybody that people saw, even if they didn't want to, as tracked by the number of views. Uh, on the other hand, Fox is like keeping it all for themselves. But what service is that to them, to their advertisers, to the candidates? It just seems like a, almost a deliberate self-marginalization. I had to find the debate on uh, the majority report. Uh, video podcast. So this is like a social democratic podcast uh, started many years ago by Janine Garofalo, among others. Uh, and uh, But it was just them commenting on it. So I had to get the debate with particular left-wing commentary in order to watch the debate just from start to finish. That was the only way I could do it. It was two uh, Zoomers and an aging hippie. Uh, and uh, that's that's what I saw. So that was interesting. It was nice to get that extra level of uh, perspective on it, actually. But that was the only way I could find it. And I, I can't imagine that Fox thinks that serves their interests well. Um, so I'm a little confused by that. That seems a bit bizarre to me. And it it's, makes me wonder a bit about, you know, Trump's whole campaign in 2016 um, he did go to debates. Um, he was on TV, but a lot of what he did was social media driven, and he really revolutionized the way in which candidates campaign because of that. So did Bernie Sanders, for that matter. Um, and it makes me wonder if if 
debates are becoming kind of passe, or at least the delivery method. Um, and to what extent is it like, you know, the difference between print news and internet? Like it felt like, it felt like why doesn't Fox News, I mean, they do, technically you could go to their website and watch it, but you'd have to sign up for a Fox News or Fox Business account and get all their unwanted emails, which who's going to do that? I'm, yeah. I'm certainly not going to, and I didn't. Um, and so it just seemed really backwards to me. It, it, it felt like somebody clinging to their print newspaper when everybody's going online instead of trying to find a working business model for that, that new media environment. On the, uh, on the flip side of that, you do have this issue with the Tucker interview that it probably didn't play out as well as they anticipated that it would. So you do still have this contingent of voters who are somehow terminally online. Um, but they tend to be kind of, I would say, boomer age, right? They're kind of like a little bit aging. Um, I would have watched it on TikTok. I would have watched it more likely on TikTok because that's how I actually get streaming live news. I'm not a Zoomer by any stretch, but um, if I'm watching a trial, if I'm watching something that I am fascinated by, I see most other places will stream it. ABC, NBC, um, Court TV, they have a streaming situation on TikTok, on YouTube, and then that gets um cataloged and you can go back to it later through links on their site so that does seem you know out of out of character for fox but having um i did come from fox fair warning um and i can't explain it so i i i don't officially know i can't give you an explanation um but it, it does seem like on the on the flip side of that um the debate or the interview with tucker carlson i think should have probably been groundbreaking for Trump. I think it should have been something that people talked about the next morning and that they were anticipating that it would overshadow discussion of the debate. And really, discussion of the debate overshadowed the Tucker Carlson interview. I actually have no idea because I didn't watch it. I have no idea what happened um, on the Tucker Carlson interview. And I am the definition of terminally online. So um, I think it's it's odd to me that that flopped. Um, and so that to me seems like there is a changing landscape. Perhaps it is not the end of debates and maybe it was a miscalculation not to send him to the debate. I know that they tried to send surrogates. They tried to send people to the spin room and Fox said, if you are not participating, there's no reason for you to be in the spin room. They didn't really get much out of that either. You saw his son was out in the parking lot saying he wasn't allowed in. And the comments on that video were like, well, you're not part of the debate. So why would they let you in the spin room? You can't defend your own candidate. Go and put the candidate on the stage. Um, so, and, and they anticipated, I think, that Trump would be the central focus of the debate, that people were going to be talking about themselves in opposition to Trump. And that's not what happened. They talked about themselves in opposition to Ramaswamy or opposition to um, you know, Tim Scott's decision potentially to invade Mexico. There were lots of weird things that happened that made it interesting enough that Trump wasn't the weirdest thing on that night, which maybe spells doom for America, but it does also change how we how we consume this information. So one of the things that I thought about with this debate is I thought about I wasn't always as debate cynical as I am today. And in fact, during the 2000 election, when I was in high school, I got tickets to the Republican debate at Calvin 
College, now Calvin University. And now this, X. Now, <laughs> now soon to be Calvin X. Um, but at Calvin, they had, you know, this was George W. Bush, of course. Uh, Senator McCain was the uh, next leading candidate at that point. Some sort of perennial candidates were there as well, like Pat Buchanan, uh, Gary Bauer, these sorts of sorts of folks. Uh, Alan Keyes was there, um, early early favorite of Young Dan, along with Pat Buchanan. Um, and this is part of the reason that I think Young Dan was so entranced by it is because I didn't get exactly what was going on. I thought that if you got up on that stage, that meant you had a chance of being president. So I was like very interested in what everyone had to say. And then I noticed at the end, as the audience fills out, George W. Bush and Senator John McCain disappear almost immediately. And the reason is, is because they had media opportunities immediately after the debate, because you had the two leading candidates that everyone wanted to talk to. The other candidates stuck around um, because they literally did not have anywhere better to be than with voters. Now, other insight that I took away from this debate is there were two ladies who stayed until the last person was there, and that was Laura Bush, future first lady, and that was Cindy McCain, because they knew people who were there, who were their husband's supporters. They had a job to do, and meeting and greeting those folks, maintaining enthusiasm for candidates. So there's all sorts of things that happen around a debate that aren't really the debate itself. And I wonder if there was anything, you know, Emily talked a little bit about this, the spin room aspirations of some folks that weren't realized. Is there anything in the aftermath of the debate that with the, the debate just served as, as like a launching platform, too, that you see as, as potentially uh, uh, contributing to uh, this campaign going forward? Yeah. I mean, there's a yeah, there's a whole mechanism that lurches into operation behind the scenes. So uh, uh, typically right now you are very early in the campaign cycle between the 4th of July and Labor Day of the year before. This is when all of these campaigns are staffing up. So you don't have the same kind of apparatus that you'll have in 6 months that you'll have in a year. Right now you have the early early basics of a campaign. You have the early basics of a war room, but you still do have people who are working to get this moving, who are there to do rapid response, but it's extremely, extremely early. And so when you watch a debate like this, you're really watching the very first tinges of a campaign. You look at all of these people are now looking at what they said in the campaign, what resonated with the audience. They all have their internal pollsters. So you see, when I I was joking about Tim Scott talking about invading Mexico, he did say something along those lines or could be interpreted that way. But it must have done incredibly well with the people that he was working with because this morning they then released an ad where he's on the border, he's talking about what the DEA and the ATF are going to do with the border. He's talking about taking on the cartels with the military. This is something that he's now going to run on because he just blurted it out in the debate and it did very well. So you do see a lot of launch that's happening now. Now, 
three months from now, you'll have another debate. The apparatuses will be in motion. There will be a more effective war room. You're going to start to see more specific commercials directed at people in Iowa, people in New Hampshire, people in South Carolina. Those are going to be the real, I'm going to attack everybody kind of ads. This is when it gets good. And you remember Joe Biden didn't even show up until South Carolina. We are super early on on the Republican side, just as much as they were on the Democrat side. There will be people who now get together and say, we need to call this person, call that person. They're no longer going to be on the stage. Um, There's a whole mechanism now that will start to lurch into motion. And by Labor Day of next year, you not only will have had the convention, but you'll have every person who is in the top notch of these campaigns are now going to move into the presidential campaign and be behind that person. So it's not just a trial for your candidates, but it's also a trial for the early people on the campaign and who gets in on the on the ground floor. Um so it is a, it's a really fascinating situation that happens behind the scenes too. <laughs> That's a, a really interesting point and in that that is, you know, there are a lot of candidates that they have very low name recognition. So they're just showing up trying to be a headline or trying to have that one clip that might go viral. Um and so there's you could you could almost put it in terms of the scientific method that they're trying stuff. Hypothesis. You know, if I say climate change is a hoax, it'll go viral. That was Ramaswamy, by the way. Um, and and that'll get me attention. Or if I say I'm going to invade Mexico, you know, like Tim Scott, that'll get me attention. Um, and now they're they're they did their polls or whatever um, and they're campaigning on it. Um, so that's that's another way to interpret well what was going on in the debate. Um, I think you can you can go to extremes uh, with that um, in ways that that ultimately hurt a campaign. But I think that's maybe a way of making sense of because you always get this in general anyway that people have these prepared statements and they're not really debating; they're just trying to get in their little soundbite. Um, but maybe they have a, a, a spectrum of soundbites, and they're like, you know, we're just going to try to say them all, and then we're going to say which one or two people really resonate with, and then we'll hone in on that uh, for the rest of the campaign. Um, so that's that's a, a really interesting kind of hermeneutic uh, for understanding uh, what goes on at debates in general, but especially in early debate uh, like this first debate. Um, as far as your point, Dan, the one person I saw immediately leave the stage was Ron DeSantis, which makes sense uh, given his polling numbers. Um, I'm sure if Donald Trump were there, he would have immediately left the stage as well. Everyone else stayed, and Ramaswamy was like shaking everyone's hand and like still owning the stage uh, after after you know minutes after it gone. But as far as the spin room goes, this hasn't been mentioned yet, um, and it is, and it kind of gets back to my point of you know. People run for president not necessarily because they want to be president. I'm sure some of these people do. Um, but the first comment uh, from one of the Fox News commentators might have been Sean Hannity or someone else. They said, you know, it kind of felt like an undercard debate. Like, you know, like when they do like the JV debate, they did this in like 2016 where they had so many candidates. They're like, look, we can't even fit you all on a stage. So you three, you're going to have your own little like junior debate before the real thing. His comment was basically the whole thing felt like one of those little junior debates, uh, which was really a way to undercut your content uh, that you just produced. But it was also kind of true. It kind of felt that way that you have all these people that are just grasping for any kind of attention um, and trying to get 
notice so that maybe they can level up the the next month um, for the next debate coming up. Um, and that's that's part of my impression with it as well is that I didn't come away thinking, oh, there there's the person, there's the clear competition for Donald Trump. Um, there was some people who I think we're going to have to pay attention to for the next month or two. But I didn't get that clear signal. You know, like I said, I think the opportunity is with the the GOP voters with college degrees. I saw only two people trying to seize that opportunity. One, I think, uh, has no chance just because nobody likes Chris Christie. And the other one, I think she did okay. But she didn't, it wasn't like an outstanding performance either um, with Nikki Haley. So um, that's kind of my, my takeaway on that. Let's call it a wrap there. We will continue to pay attention to the wheels within wheels and the plans within <laughs> plans as this campaign develops. Thank you all for listening to Action Unwind. If you're listening to this podcast on our website, please look in the show notes for a link to where you can subscribe directly to Action Unwind or just search Action Unwind on your favorite podcast app. Also, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, five-star reviews only, so that more people can find this program. A concluding note to our loyal listeners, there will be no show next week over the holiday weekend. Thanks to Dylan. Thanks to Emily. For for the Acton Institute, I'm Dan Huger. We will see you, not next week, but the (laughs) week after that. Little late breaking news. Former uh, Acton Institute Research Department uh, impresario Sarah Negri, uh, frequent guest on the Acton Unwind podcast, uh, interviewer on Acton Line, has recently been engaged to, uh, let me see, it's Horatio Magellan Crunch? No, that can't be right. That's what it says here. Well, we'll look into that. Well, congratulations to Sarah and congratulations to the captain for making it happen.